All right, I want to spend a little bit more uh, time on the article because uh, we didn't really get into the Newton and Einstein stuff, and at, then toward the latter part, we'll uh, get into the textual criticism. Now, we're dealing with the uh, article, Reading Scripture as Lutherans in the Postmodern Era. And remember, the two major things with this are that we're taking from postmodernism is no objective interpretation and no comprehensive explanation. So in the first part, this is where we talked about Marva Dawn with her idea that there are kind of objective texts that you can just kind of glom onto, and then that's guidance for everybody in all circumstances. And in here, this is where the Newton and Einstein stuff comes in about comprehensive explanation. Now, before we get off of the Marva Dawn thing that we talked about last time, I want you to take a look at um, page 315, if you've got your copy. And it's uh, about the middle of the page, right before that paragraph split. I want you to see what I've got there. The context-bound nature of all discourse is the basis for what's called in literary circles deconstructive analysis, which takes as its primary task deconstructing or unmasking the moves made by authors. Now, you've got to know this. You hear this all the time, deconstruction. Deconstruction does not mean destruction. It doesn't mean disassembling so as to destroy. It really is unmasking taking away the masks, deconstructing the um, false objectivity and the stated reasons why you're doing something to get to what's really underlying. So thus I use the phrase unmasking the moves made by authors. When the meaning of text is assumed to be obvious and when the scope of a text description is seen to be totalizing or complete. By totalizing, we mean it's always true at all times, and it is something that just stands out there non-contextualized. Now, I want to draw your attention to something here at this point. If you pay attention to this, it's going to save you a lot of grief. Footnote 25. Now, footnote 25 talks about one of the most celebrated and controverted passages that is under discussion in our circles. So-called AC7. That is, Augsburg Confession 7. Which says that it is enough for the true unity of the church that there be agreement in the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments. But look what I say here in this footnote. This satis est, it is sufficient. This assertion concerning the true unity of the church is not an abstract statement, a non-contextualized programmatic utterance 
which stands isolated in and of itself. Rather, it is uttered contextually versus a Roman Catholic assertion that the Reformers destroyed the true unity of the church by their proclamation of the gospel and their actions. Article 7 asserts that the true unity is maintained if the gospel is preached purely and the sacraments administered rightly. Allegiance to a church organization or commonality in traditions is not necessary for the basis, uh, the, the maintenance, sorry, of this unity. Therefore, AC7 does not constitute an abstract if not minimalistic principle for establishing denominational pulpit and altar fellowship. You hear this kind of thing all the time, where people would say, look, on these fellowship issues, just AC7, it says, it's just enough if you do this. Yeah, if you're taking this as some objective, non-contextualized statement that just sort of drops out of the sky as a... um, non-context-bound decree. No, it's not. Everything is context-bound in some way. If I go back to what we talked about in one of the earlier chapters of the book, this is the difference between paradigmatic and syntagmatic. Remember we had that discussion? Syntagmatic, like syntax, is uh, meaning considered against meanings of other things in the sentence. But paradigmatic is versus the alternatives. So if I say something like, oh, he said he wanted to play baseball, you can even tell by my voice that that's as opposed to some other kind of a sport. So uh, this this is sort of the idea here, that any statement is at least within the context of some alternative that it is being stood against, I guess you could say. So, um, you know, it's, this is a very, a very interesting idea of Marva Dawn, her type A and B text. I think it simply does not stand up to the kind of contextualized scrutiny that, that you need. Now, in connection with this, there was one reaction paper that, I, uh, that spoke of this that I wanted to uh, refer to. And uh, is this Marx? Uh, No, this is Hemmler. A number of years ago, I read a book by Marva Dawn, the author mentioned in the article. In it, she taught that we should worship and rest on the Sabbath day as is commanded in the Old Testament. Would this fit under her classification of normative or instructive texts? Yeah. See, I, I have been on programs with her. You know, and the complexity of this, I think, is not always appreciated by her. That no matter how clear the statement seems, it's always contextualized. See, so Galatians 3.28, neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Uh, Not as cold, hard, analytical, and non-contextualized as you think. And the same is true of anything in the Old Testament about remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy and so on like that. This is why, Jonathan, you actually need, and this is what I've been pleading for in this course all of these ten weeks, you actually need a thoroughgoing hermeneutic 
that is going to take seriously all the passages in their context over against kingdom of God and proleptic eschatology, you know, all that stuff. You know, thus, guys, don't ever fall for the expediency of telling your congregation to tithe because it says someplace in the Old Testament that God wants you to tithe. Well, you have to work through a huge hermeneutical morass to get to that point. I mean, I just don't think it can be upheld, frankly. Um, and I'm not, I'm not talking even about whether it's civil or ceremonial or something like that. Uh, but you, you can't just kind of dive in and take some passages. Fact of the matter is, a number of people will accuse us, in that sense, of being just picky and choosy. You go take what you want, but how come you don't um, fail to have two kinds of threads in your garment or something like that? We'll see. Luther just kind of cut the Gordian knot and said, all the laws are gone. Now you still have natural law. So it kind of brings in the back by the back door the moral stuff. But he's not going to be impressed, and I think he's right on this, he's not going to be impressed by you quoting an OT law and saying, because it's in the Old Testament, therefore we should obey it. That, that is not going to fly the way he's approaching this. So, Jonathan, thank you very much for that question. Now, on the no comprehensive explanation uh, and the Newton and Einstein stuff. Now, guys, and anybody watching this, the key here in the article is pages 323 and 324. It actually, happily, set up rather nicely that you have the four categories with Newtonian passages on one page, and then you just flip the page over and it's, it's over there. It didn't go, you know, by a half page or anything like that. Uh, 323 and 324. Now, the basic idea here with this Newton and Einstein, and I'm going to get to your papers on this, is really what I'm calling Newtonian is the way we sort of experience life, the way life is in the way we feel and think about it and experience. Thus, it does really seem like you make a decision for Jesus. It does really seem like you decide not to give in to that temptation or that bad habit that you have. In other words, you're thinking about it and you say, no, I'm not going to do that. Now, it may have all kinds of by the power of the Holy Spirit stuff in there, but it's not like, it, it's not like you're not thinking that you're doing this. So this is why I call Newton, just like Newtonian physics, phenomenological. It's the way the world strikes you and you experience it. You know, guys, when engineers build bridges, they don't use subnuclear physics. They use Newtonian physics. They plan on equal and opposite reactions and all that kind of stuff. Um, this is a pretty pathetic example, but I'll use it. The other day, when I got out of the stall door in the men's room, the thing, I unlocked it, and the door did not come this way. It just stayed right there. 
So what did I do? Instead of kind of picking at it to open it, I just kind of hit it like that so it would bounce against the thing and come back. I was using Newtonian physics. I'm figuring there's equal and opposite reactions. I'm not thinking, hey, you know what? It's all just a matter of chance, and maybe the door will just stick there and not come. No, no, no. I'm not thinking that way. Because in the Newtonian world, there are equal and opposite reactions. When you go faster, you don't get shorter. Or when you go faster, time doesn't slow down. Everything, time's a constant. All the other physical properties are constants. So that's the way we sort of experience life. And what I'm contending here in this article is that there are huge sections of the Bible that are Newtonian, that are the way you kind of experience as a, a, a sensate person interaction with the divine. Thus, God and his actions. Number one, according to the Newtonian perspective, God is revealed as a partner. He responds to us. Well, look at the passages. He's pleased by the sacrifice of people. He is pleased by those who fear him and do what is good and acceptable in his sight. He's not far from us. He changes his mind. Now, you see, lots of people have taken those passages, and what they do is they kind of say, oh, those are just anthropomorphisms. They're sort of just giving God a human character. Well, you might be able to stay with that if it weren't for the fact that when you go on to some other things, this picture just builds. Humankind, in this perspective, our state is revealed as bad, but we're not helpless and we're not without responsibility. We are ignorant. We walk in our own ways. We are distant from God, but we're ignorant. We're kind of on the wrong path. We're distant. It's not so hopeless that you can't do anything about it. Now, personal salvation. In this perspective, all the talk in these kinds of passages, and I want you to notice, I have all these Acts passages here. We can seek after God and find Him. We're called to repent. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We're told to turn to the living God. In other words, the appeal comes across as if you can actually make a difference in this. Maybe one of the biggest ones is number four, the Christian life. Here, after conversion, the image seems to be that you can choose to do the good. Thus, St. Paul exhorts people all the time to do it. And in this sense, it's kind of similar to Plato's idea of the charioteer who has a white horse and a black horse, and you exhort the charioteer to give the head to the white horse and not to the black horse. So it's like Paul in Romans 6 saying, don't use your bodies as weapons of unrighteousness. Use your bodies as weapons for righteousness. Now, it sounds when he's saying that, like you can actually choose one or the other one of those. That's what I mean. That's probably as good an example as there is, is his kind of exhortation like that. Well, when you're faced with a temptation, you can either give in or not. 
Now, the Einsteinian, and as I said, I use Einstein simply because he's the well-known name in this, of the universe as really not Newtonian and quite odd and strange. The universe where things are only by chance in their occurrence at the subnuclear level <clears throat> or at the macro level. As you approach the speed of light, time slows down. Things get shorter. Um, <clears throat> at the subnuclear level, things can actually be alive and dead at the same time. And indeed, we went through that two slit experiment. You saw that thing that I did early on in the class where uh, something has the characteristics of waves. All of a sudden, it has the characteristics of particles. And it kind of depends on whether you're looking or not. So according to this kind of view, now this is the best way, the best word for me to use here is this. This is non or counterintuitive. And this is intuitive. It's the way you think the, think the world ought to work. It's counterintuitive to think that something could exhibit the properties of waves and the properties of particles depending upon whether you're looking at it. Now, according to this, this is now, if, if you've got your copy there, you could write in, this is now totally monergistic. God is the creator. He chooses his people. He, he makes them a new creation. They're made holy. They're justified by him. Now, our state, number two, we are hopeless. We're totally in the dark. And probably the best word to illustrate this is dead. We are dead in trespasses and sins. You can't do anything about it. Number three, personal salvation. It's the act of God alone. He died for us. He chooses. He makes alive. He saves. He finds the lost. You can't exhort a dead man to repent. And then number four, the Christian life. This is God's act. We are wretched. Romans 7 is the key. We are wretched and do what we desire not to do. We must be delivered from this body of death. O oh, wretched man that I am, Paul says in Romans 7, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, now listen to this. This is real key. What my scheme here is about is essentially the relationship between Romans 6 and Romans 7. What do you do about Paul exhorting people to use their bodies as weapons of righteousness and then one chapter later saying, O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Why? The good that I want to do, I don't do. The evil that I don't want to do, that's what I do. See, how come the people don't just say that to Paul? Why are you exhorting us to use our bodies as weapons of righteousness? Don't you know you're just enslaved? Who will deliver me from this body of death? We can't do that. What the heck are you talking about? Now, the juxtaposition 
as they would say in the Bronx. The juxtaposition of Romans 6 and Romans 7 has caused people to do all kinds of interpretive moves on Romans 7, i.e., it's not really Paul in his converted state. They say, no, it's Paul pre-conversion, or it's humanity before its conversion, or it's every man or some other or Jews before their conversion, or something like that. See, interpreters understand the paradox here. And they, you might say they take it out on Romans 7. I did not realize this. I did not even know this in any, I, I mean, I kind of, you know, had sort of heard people talk about it, but I never experienced it until I went to England after my graduation from the seminary here. And so I'm a, you know, Concordia Seminary grad, Lutheran guy and everything, doing Lutheran stuff with the text. And uh, uh, lo and behold, there wasn't one English person I met who had what you'd call a Lutheran interpretation of Romans 7. That it's kind of simul justus et peccator, you know, I am saint and sinner at the same time. And what's even better, instead of simul justus et peccator, is totus justus and totus peccator. Fully sinner and fully um, righteous. Um, Well, the other way around the way I said it. Totus justus, fully righteous, just. And totus peccator, uh, a totally sinner. They didn't view it that way. They felt you had to kind of work on the text. Now, what I'm saying is, no, what we do is we actually read Paul as he's talking about this and realize that he's kind of on a different scale. When you're doing Newton, you're sort of doing everyday life, and um, it's kind of like this. You're raising your little kid, and... Every parent does this, and it's right to do it. Kid starts hitting another kid, and you say, Chris, don't do that. Christian boys don't do that. Absolute Newtonian statement, and there's nothing wrong with it. Okay? You are dealing with the phenomena of how the Christian life plays its way out. Or somebody says, you're going along, and you're saying, hey, I'm seeing that kind of want to go into that casino and you just cashed your check. That idea. Don't do that. That's where that temptation is going to get you. And the guy, yeah, okay, I, I just got to not do that. I mean, you can talk like this. Now, now, when it comes time to really understand what's going on, so to speak, behind the screen, then... Einstein kicks in. So in the end, in the end, you really can't do anything. This business of you making a decision for Christ only seems like that. Okay? But it takes you a while to get there, just like it took scientists a while to get there. In other words, you don't just, um, well, I mean, let me just say, with the example that I used, Evangelism is, 
as you would say, ineluctably, a Newtonian activity. You go out and appeal. What must I do to be saved? Answer, believe in, the Jesus, in Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. It is, a, it is a Newtonian activity. Now, in the end, it will have to be the way my now-sainted uh, instructor from Cambridge, Charlie Mole, the way he said that, this little guy, you know, five foot eight and about 125 pounds, chirpy little guy, you know. And actually, when you think about it, any Christian worth his salt is going to have to say that anything good that happens, including his own faith, comes from God. Yeah. He's absolutely right. I was so amazed to hear him say that as an Anglican. But when you think about it, see, when you're doing kind of in-depth analysis, but it's not generally where people live their lives, just like the guys building the bridges don't use Einstein for building bridges. Now, as you know in the article... I talk about the fact that Lutherans are really good at Einstein, drilling down to the core. You are nothing but a bag of worms, you know. You're dead. You can't do anything. It's only God's grace. <clears throat> well, you have a problem with this? Cheap grace. If it doesn't make any difference what I'm doing, then I can do, do whatever I want. This has always been the argument that's stalked against Lutheranism. Now, on the other hand, the Reformed tradition's much more comfortable with Einstein, making decisions for Jesus, or the Arminian tradition. What's that? Oh, no, uh, thank you. No, I, I meant Newton. It's much, more, it's much more comfortable with Newton, with making decisions. Decision theology would be exactly like that. And you know what? It is the way we tend to experience it phenomenologically. Now, the, you know, the beauty of this, let me just say one other thing. When I wrote this article, this next thing I'm going to tell you hadn't really occurred to me. And that is, <clears throat> the problem comes in when you try to make one system into the other. Here's what I mean. When you try to make Newton Einstein. So if you try to make this phenomenological experiential thing the real story, now you've gone wrong. So now, really, you have to make a decision for Jesus. I mean, that's kind of the ultimate bottom line, and there's nothing deeper than that. Now, is it possible to go wrong with Einstein? Well, it occurred to me when I was doing a pastor's conference a couple of years ago. Now listen to this carefully. Here's an example of going wrong with Einstein. Double predestinarian Calvinism. So, God predestines to salvation. Well, what's the other shoe, J.B., that seems to want to drop? He predestines to? Damnation. Right. Why? Because that's logically the way it is in the world. 
you have one thing, you have some concomitant thing that balances it. It is precisely, what's the word I want here? The, the paradox of the fact that there's election to salvation and not to damnation that is exactly like the paradox of the world of Einstein. Stuff does not fit together smoothly. Hey, it's looking like waves. Oh, now it does particles things. Okay? So the problem, basically, with predestinarian Calvinism is it's demanding the deepest explanation to be as reasonable as the surface explanation. That's a good way to put it. Let me say that again. It's demanding that the explanation of the deepest realities to be as reasonable, as smooth, and as logical as a surface explanation. And by its very nature, it's not. It's not. Now, I think one of the things that this does is it gives you the whole Bible back. For example, under Newton here, you can much more easily handle Deuteronomy, the book of Acts. The last parts of Paul where he is making encouraging, um, you know, illocutionary force stuff to people and telling them how to live and everything like that. All of this is essentially Newtonian. However, what you see, what you see in the Old Testament, there are always hints of this, that this kind of deep, let me put it like this on the board, deep basis. This deep basis is recognizable, and you see it in Romans, uh, no, in Deuteronomy 7, where Yahweh says that I chose you, though you were the least among the peoples, and you didn't do anything. See, that's actually the hint that there's something very deep as a basis behind this. Now, by the way, would you all just take your Bibles and take a look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. And I'm going now at 12 and 13. It's right after the end of the great hymn to the humiliation of Christ. And so now here, in Philippians 2, we're going to pick it up here toward the end. He goes a little further before that. He says, but now much more in my absence, apousia, with fear and trembling, your own salvation accomplish. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now look at 13. For God it is, 
the one who works in you both to will, to wish, and to work on behalf of his good pleasure. Now, there are Newton and Einstein right next to each other. Verse 12 is Newton. Verse 13 is Einstein. And you'll frequently find this, that there will be kind of these a Newtonian section. You'll see this in the Psalms. And you get sort of toward the end, and boom, there's just one of these passages that gives you this deeper view. Um, uh, Now, again, if you look at exegesis, the juxtaposition of these two views will cause people terrible problems when they're doing their exegesis. Like, for example, this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For is it God who works in you to will and to do? Asking a question. See, implying the answer no because of what's at the end of verse 12. I've seen that, that interpretation. So you've got to do something about the ability of people like Paul to juxtapose these two things, one, after, one against the other. But this one, uh, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, is just a terrific example of this. Now, let me take a couple of your questions. Dan. And you're talking about the paradox, Newton and Einstein. It almost seems that Lutherans are the ones, based on their theology, who would be most comfortable with this understanding of interpretation. You know, I think you're right. It's kind of interesting that Luther, you might say centuries ahead of his time, understood that you had to kind of live with the paradox of some of this stuff. And I think it's a hallmark, just in general, in Reformed thinking, not to be able to live with the paradox. Good. Uh, Chet. There is no clear word of God endorsing Einstein over Newton. These two uh, views of our world are just that, views. Just like the view out the top of the front of a train is different than the back as it moves down the track. These exist in the same reality but are different views. You know, no. Yeah, no, not, not really. One's sort of the surface view and the other is the in-depth. It's not just exactly like two pers- perspectives. Well, in, in the same way, here's kind of what you were saying. <clears throat> this would be like seeing light have wave characteristics and particle characteristics on, you know, kind of looking at it subnuclearly or something like that. That's more the paradox you're talking about. But Newton and Einstein, the way we're talking about it, uh, is really, sorry, daily experience versus what's happening at the deepest level, something like that. Okay, Chris. Uh, now, this is interesting, Chris. this distinction of Newton and Einstein seems to fit with the two kinds of righteousness. Newtonian quorum mundo and Einsteinian quorum deo. What do you think? I think not. uh, uh, (laughs) Chuck Aaron tried that on me. And, you know, I think not because they both have quorum deo, quorum hominibus, uh, uh, 
components to them. In other words, let's just take Coram Dale. If you're Newton, it's God has an approach and I have to respond to it. And he responds to what I do. If you're Einstein, <clears throat> I'm dead. I can do nothing. I'm, I, you know, I'm dead in trespasses and sins. God has to come to me, redeem me, vivify me through the Spirit. All that is kind of counterintuitive in that sense. So that, that is a very interesting question, though. Now, uh, okay, this was Dallas. Would you clarify as to in what way the Einstein model would be better suited for the situation um, at the child's funeral? Does it have to do with the fact that there is no easy explanation from a human perspective, and would that entail avoiding too much explanation? Yes. I mean, a quick answer is yes, because... um, I have a sheet that I could hand out on that, and I just chose not to bring it. But the sort of the Newtonian version, let me put it like this, Newtonian version of why bad things happen in the world has to do with Satan, Satan bringing things on people, people being uh, punished for their sins, and so on. Now, on the Einsteinian level, you get this kind of inscrutability like you're talking about. Why did this happen? My brother, the brother between me and my current brother, died at four years old. Well, lots of people around the world, they're all Newtonians, will think something like our family did something wrong, there was a reason for it, God's punishing you, see, something like that. Where Einstein gets you out of is the cause and effect mode. Cause and effect is our everyday experience of things. That's why I talked about equal and opposite reactions. See, Cause and effect is our daily experience. As a matter of fact, on this, what you know you call the subnuclear macro level of Einstein, it isn't cause and effect. It is not equal and opposite reactions. So... Um, so, yeah, I mean, a short answer to your thing would be, yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, uh, Malachi, uh, would you say Einsteinian model of interpretation gets closer to the implied reader realm? No, because he might be thinking the implied reader is reacting on a Newtonian level. So, yeah, I mean, it, it could be, but... Now, this is very interesting. He was slanging at me again here, ciphered. Yes, okay. I'm really confused by Einstein and Newton understandings toward the end of the article. Lutherans are Einsteinian to the core. It seems that Newtonian theology promotes works rather than grace. Yeah, but Einsteinian theology promotes cheap grace. See? So it doesn't make any difference what I do. I'm a bag of crap. So, and I'm incapable. I'm dead. See? So I'm no worse when I do something really bad, I'm no, I'm no worse than when I do something a little bit bad. If you even look lustfully at a woman, you've committed adultery. See? So, hey, may as well be hung for a sheep as for a lamb, huh? So, see, I think that there are just as many problems in the Einsteinian one, in that sense, for kind of living daily life. And... Um, uh, 
And by the way, this is exactly why Joel Osteen and the, and the TV evangelists do so well. They never move out of Newton. They, they keep with people's basic experience of life. I would say, um, I mean, here, here's an Einstein moment. I besought the Lord to remove my thorn in the, thorn in the flesh. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. An Einstein moment. There is no explanation, and I'm going to work contrary to what seems intuitive. This is precisely why the so-called theology of glory guys uh, you know, have kind of one way in which they operate, which is you sort of get what you deserve, and if you've prayed hard enough and done this and that, you'll be successful and all the rest, because you've got to have equal and opposite reactions, cause and effect, all that stuff. Uh, Mark, no, this is Grayson. The article talks about how we should translate Scripture in two different ways. Now, why, why did you say that? Translate it in two different ways. I don't know. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Now, <clears throat> Matthew Ozzy Gonzalez. Matthew, this must be bad. <laughs> would a modernist agree with our style of interpretation at all, or would they discredit us altogether? They discredit us altogether. The, 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 a modernist has, this is why I contended Ozzy early on, it's, that those developments in theoretical physics that broke modernism down. Because finally, you do not have a sort of normal, intuitive universe. You've got something else. And then that's the death of modernism, which believes in objectivity, abstraction, universal application, and so on. So, yeah, no, I mean, this is why Germans don't like this stuff, generally. Um, now, here is a very interesting thing from Whedon. <clears throat> is it really as black and white as modernism and postmodernism? What happens in a thousand years when physics realizes that there is a harmony to be found in a grand universal theory? Will that, in turn, change the way people should read Scripture? Very profound, Andy. And I've got to tell you, it's a question that really bothers me. Because I think this approach that I'm suggesting to you is true to the data in the scripture, is correct. But I'm going to admit to you freely, all of you, that I have worked analogically from physics. I read for a couple of years in theoretical physics. I'm working analogically from that to the way the theology in the Bible is expressed. I've never seen anybody else do that. I wouldn't have ever been able to do this in the year 1885. Because at that point, there was no counterintuitive universe. And so what I've done is I've said... That counterintuitive universe, which you simply have to come to terms with, you can't understand it. 
that if I look, it does something different. <clears throat> that counterintuitive universe is a product of this kind of investigation, scientific investigation, which has also had repercussions in other areas. And it's as if, Andy, Luther sort of was able to intuit that or, or something, you know, that there had to be this, and he would have called it Deus Absconditus, the hidden God, that there's this sort of other, other. Now, what I'm saying is more than that, though, because even the revealed God, with things like him saying, I've chosen you, and there's no reason why I chose you, you know, stuff like this, that's still all part of this. So what you're, you're raising the question, <clears throat> if you're using science as a heuristic device, as we would say on the docks in Brooklyn, then, um, you know, what happens if science changes? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. But I, but I will say this. I do think that this lens through which to see the biblical data for me, makes sense of the data. Because otherwise, what do you do with Romans 6 and Romans 7? What do you do with Philippians 2, verses 12, and then 13, right next to each other? What do you do with all these Psalms that say stuff like, um, Lord, save me, for I am your servant. I have obeyed your laws. Why do the wicked triumph over me? All that kind of stuff. Those are all Newtonian passages. But then on the other hand, you have Psalm 51. You create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Which doesn't at all sound like the statement, you know, I have kept thy laws and stuff like that. So um, uh, I, I think what this does is it obviates the necessity of doing something really funny with passages, either on the Newton or the Einstein side. Hey, here would be an example. <clears throat> Matthew 7. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. That's a Newtonian passage. See? The people who do God's will, God is pleased with. It's not. Now watch the typical Lutheran go at that passage. Ooh, that's legalism. Well, do the will of my Father. What is the will of the Father? That he believe in Jesus Christ, his Son. Ooh, so to do is to believe. So then he's actually talking about, you know, see, and you're all over the place, and the passage isn't on any of that. You've gone to John rather than Matthew when you've done that. And this is the kind of thing we engage in all the time, of um, uh, attempting to massage one passage into the other system. Like I say, you can do it the other way and do it to Romans 7. And suddenly, I mean, it's clear in Romans 7, Paul's talking about himself. Now, he's not talking about pre-conversion, but you have to make it that way if 6 and 7 have got to be congruent and 6 is going to stand on its own. So, um, uh, thank you for that, Andy. I, that's, a, that's a very, very profound uh, uh, statement, and I'll tell you, <clears throat> Chris. Here, would you just take these and hand these out uh, to everybody? Here, uh, sorry, Josh. Uh, every place I said, Chris, I meant Josh. Uh, this is something. 
I'd be interested in your reactions to this, just something to hand out. I Believe it or not, I used this in my adult Bible class at St. Paul's de Pere because we've done all the Newton and Einstein stuff in that class, and they're all familiar with it. <clears throat> but I think using this scheme, it helps to explain the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and what the difference is. And so the first part, part one, is just a basic intro on Newton and Einstein. But take a look at number two, the basic idea relative to the Old and the New Covenants. The focus, A, the focus, emphasis, and basic description of the Old, Te- Old Covenant is Newtonian. We see this from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 8. Soteriology involves interaction with God who responds to our actions. In terms of anthropology, God's people are able to respond positively to his will and be rewarded for it. When they do not so respond, they are punished. By contrast, the focus, emphasis, and basic description of the new covenant is Einsteinian. Here, God's action is monergistic. He alone saves us while we were yet sinners, while we're dead. In terms of anthropology, people are not able to respond positively to God's will because they're dead. And even Christians are trapped within a body of death. So thus, according to this analysis, look at C. The old covenant is normal and reasonable, that is, what one would expect in terms of how things work in the world. In other words, there's cause and effect, equal and opposite reactions. God blesses his people when they do his will. When they don't, he punishes them. The new covenant is weird and counterintuitive, characterized by God's actions regardless of ours. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. And by our inability to respond to his expressed will, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Now, these corollaries, you can read the summary later on on page 2 on your own, but these corollaries are really kind of the point of all this. And that is, though the Old Covenant is presented as and understood as Newtonian, there are hints that it has at its core an Einsteinian base. Deuteronomy 7 speaks of God's choosing of his people regardless of their worthiness, or even in spite of it. And 2 Corinthians 3 says a veil lies over people's minds. Now, B, though the new covenant is basically Einsteinian, there are hints that it has Newtonian implications. This is seen in the Lord's Prayer. When we pray to be forgiven as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's like, you know, all these parables you know about, parable of the unforgiving servant, parable of the talents, parable of the minas, all those are Newtonian parables. Now, uh, essentially what you get then in the summary is to say that in the book of Hebrews, what you get is an analysis that is Einsteinian of the Newtonian Old Covenant. So he says stuff like this. The blood of sheep and goats didn't take away sin. The blood of Christ takes away sin. Really? Can you find anywhere in the Old Testament where the blood of sheep and goats doesn't make any difference? Where it says, go ahead and do this stuff, but you know what? Actually, this blood does not atone. It's really pointing to Christ who's going to come. 
There isn't anything in the Old Testament like that. You get the impression that it sort of works. So what Hebrews does is it does an in-depth Einsteinian analysis like Paul does in Galatians 3, middle of the paragraph. He says the law doesn't annul the promise which precedes it and is the real basis for our relationship with God. He says the law was added because of transgression. Thus we can see what is superior about the new covenant. It provides a real solution, real sacrifice for sin. And second, and this is, this is kind of my point here now, is the second point bold. It demands an appropriate Einsteinian focus forcing us to the heart of matters, and we see this in our Lord. Jesus says, anybody who says to his brother, thou fool, it's like killing him. If you even look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you've committed adultery. Find that in the Old Testament. There's nothing like that. It's all kind of surface. Committing adultery is committing adultery. Well, what you find out in the New Covenant is, there was always a lot more behind this thing. And so you have essentially an Einsteinian analysis of what's essentially a kind of a Newtonian presentation. You know, choose you this day whom you shall serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, Joshua. That's a Newtonian statement. Choose you this day whom you shall serve. Hey, we can't do that. We are actually dead in trespasses. I mean, nobody's expecting that answer. You know, you're asking a question on the level of experience. But when it comes down to what's actually happening, actually going on, behind the screen, then you've got to go to Einstein, and then it's all counterintuitive. God saves you, and you're yet a sinner. You are dead, yet he makes you alive. You have nothing worthy within you, yet he saves you. Okay, there's a hand. JB, is that you? Okay, all right, I think I'm subsiding. Okay, uh, I just had a question on general housekeeping. Uh, what do we need to do to be prepared for the second half of the test? We'll take care of it tomorrow. <laughs> we'll be ready after tomorrow's class to take the second half. We will be. <laughs> Sounds good then, I guess. <laughs> Trust me on this. Remember, I'm the one grading it. Okay. All right. Uh, any other Newton and Einstein kinds of questions? Take a look at this here. I think this is pretty helpful for seeing where, how the two covenants kind of interrelate to each other. 